0: Hi, it's Jackie with Jackie Always Unplugged, and I know that I said I was going to do recordings like every other week, and this is my off week, but I couldn't let this week, August 26th, pass by. Why? Because 100 years ago, on this day, the 19th Amendment was officially ratified, giving us women the right to vote. And so in this podcast, I want to talk about the role of men in that, on that day when it was ratified, and also... How do we have, how do we go about making more male allies today for women in the workplace, in the church, in the home? Yeah, that's what this episode is about. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're gonna be asking hard questions dealing with real issues and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are gonna put words to your female experience. They're gonna ennoble you as Jesus intended, and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. I'm so excited about this episode because we're going to be talking about male allyship, if you will, back in the ratification of the 19th Amendment and what it looks like today Because as I mentioned, today is the 100th anniversary of that historic day when the 19th Amendment was officially ratified, giving us women the right to vote. Back then, 100 years ago, the fate of the nation, of women in America laid in the hands of a 24-year-old young man. And you may not know that. I never learned this in history. But it seems that there was a battle to ratify the 19th Amendment. And it had come down to the Tennessee legislature but it didn't look very promising. And the Washington Post posted this article about a male allyship, about this guy named Harry T. Burns, who was 24 years old, and his vote was the pivot vote. I want to read to you a little bit about that story because I don't think most of us have ever heard it. Here's how it goes. The all-male Tennessee legislator was about to decide whether to ratify the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, a change that would grant women the right to vote. And a movement the suffragists in the State House Gallery on August 18, 1920, had been working toward for weeks. Many of the men below them wore roses on their lapels, declaring the choice they'd planned to make. A yellow rose, many promised to ratify. A red rose represented a death knell for equality. Of the ninety-six lawmakers who gathered, half were wearing red or opposed suffrage. The state senate had already approved the amendment, but in a tie, at, but a, a tie in the house meant defeat. They could only win if an opponent changed his mind. Alas, comes the man, Harry T. Burns, twenty-four, the youngest state lawmaker, supported a red rose until his mentor. I don't even know how to say his first name. I think it's Herschel. I can't remember exactly. Herschel M. Chandler, I think it is. Candler, maybe, stood, I don't know, some old man 100 years ago, stood and gave a blistery speech. And Candler denounced the suffrage as these low-class and childish women just trying to put something over on the good women of Tennessee. And although Harry ad- really admired this man, he knew something was different than what he was talking about because his mother was one of those suffrages. And that morning before he left home to vote, Harry's mother slipped a note in his suit jacket. And on it, she wrote, hurry and vote for the suffrage and go, don't keep them in doubt. This scathing speech and Harry's mom's note turned Harry's red rose to yellow. And when I read that story in the Washington Post, I was so excited about it because I think it's a story that exemplifies what God intended, actually what God set in motion in Genesis 1 and 2. It's like it's like a, a modern-day picture, well, a 100-year-old picture, uh, of what Carolyn Custis James calls the blessed alliance. Um, in her book, Half the Church, she gives this vision. And I think it's God's vision for men and women, and this is what she said. God designed the world to stand on two load-bearing walls. The first load-bearing wall is God's relationship with his image bearers. Without well, this vital relationship were cut off from our life supply, we're homeless, stranded souls in the universe, left to question who we are and why we're even here. The second load-bearing wall is called the blessed alliance between male and female. According to Genesis, male and female relationships aren't simply necessary to perpetuate the human race and make life pleasurable and interesting. Male and female relationships are strategic. God laid out his game plan in Genesis, and the team he assembled to do the job was male and female. Men and women working together actually predicated men working with men and women working with women it would be one thing if God confined this male-female team to the home and the family and then mapped out the remaining territory into separate spheres for men and for women, but he didn't do that. Their mission, together, is to rule, subdue the whole earth on God's behalf. Men and women together. Our relationships with God and with each other are the load-bearing walls of God's original design. Amen, Carolyn. Amen. Unfortunately. One of the results of the fall was a rapture between male and female. Patriarchy prevailed as the primary social system that supported men as leaders and women as subordinates. And Carolyn reminds us, you know, patriarchy may be the background and even the context of the Bible, but it is not the message of the Bible. And Carolyn correctly challenges us when she says, When men are called to full-fledged kingdom living, but the other half of the church is asked to sit on the sidelines, there is no blessed alliance, the bride of Christ limbs, and we misrepresent God's oneness. In other words, we are less when women aren't at the table, all tables, including and especially top leadership tables. That, I believe, is God's vision for male and female. And I share this vision with women all over the country. And I think it's a very inviting vision, and I think most women that hear it do too, and they they respond in an excitement, and then it's also quickly followed by a sense of, well, doubt, maybe even hopelessness. I hear women say things like, yeah, that's a beautiful vision. I'm just not sure I've ever seen it in real life. And that's when I remind them, yes, you have, yes, you have. We have stories in Scripture where God broke into this fallen system and gave us glimpses of what he intended in the beginning. If you look with a Blessed Alliance lens, you'll see it. It shows up in stories like Deborah and Barak and Ruth and Boaz and Mary and Joseph and Jesus and his disciples, his female disciples. We see it in the early church. We have historical records of women and men serving as co-laborers for Jesus. There are indeed times in scripture and in history, right? A hundred years ago, Harry T. Burns, he turned his rose from red to yellow happens. We see glimpses of it. And I wanted to talk to an expert in this field of developing male allyship, he calls it. How do we continue to go about helping more and more men come alongside women so that we can have full equality, full inclusion, women and men at all the tables, even the top leadership tables. And to do that, I wanted to talk with Dr. Rob Dixon. I had the opportunity of serving with him recently, and he's an amazing advocate for women. He, was, he is a campus minister with uh, International InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA, and he spent the last 24 years helping college students get to know Jesus. In 2008, he received his doctorate from Fuller Theological Seminary, and the topic, Flourishing Mixed Gender Ministry Partnerships. He's an adjunct faculty at Fresno Pacific University and Fuller Theological Seminary, and currently he's working on his book, Together in Mission, that's coming out in 2021. And I wanted us to talk to him about his current article where he, he talks about this pathway to help more and more men become allies of women. So I hope you will enjoy this conversation with Rob. Okay, so I want to welcome Rob Dixon uh, to this podcast. Uh, thank you for taking your time to talk to us about ally- male allyship today. As you know, um, I have already been talking to our listeners about Harry T. Burns, who, whose vote ratified the 19th Amendment, and it's not lost on me how we women need men in our corner. Uh, one of the most painful things um, that I hear from other women, particularly women who minister around the United States, is their lack of support that they receive from the male leadership in their churches. Most women's voices aren't heard or welcomed at the leadership tables. And often, I receive phone calls saying, can you help me navigate this reality? Which is why I wanted to talk to Rob. We have listeners here inquiring minds want to know, Rob, what do we do? How do we get men to help support women, to help before us all the way to the top, to the ceiling, if you will? And you um, published an article, which I am guessing you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, is about comes out of your doctoral work. And the article's title is Raising Up Allies, a Standard Pathway for Developing Men into Allies for Women. And in many ways, um, you are seen as an expert in this area of study. So share a little bit with our audience about your journey into this area of allyship with women in leadership.
1: Well, thanks, Jackie. It's, first of all, I'll just say it's great to be with you um, and thanks, thankful for your listeners. I'll say a little bit about my journey, and maybe I'll try to line it up with the pathway I'm talking about in this article. So a couple of highlights I I feel like um, positive start. So my background is full of godly and gifted women who influenced me, Um, you know, whether that's in the church setting, where the church I grew up in, women could speak and teach and did from the pulpit, or in my family, women who were influential. I mean, I am the disciple and leader that I am because of these godly and gifted women that continued into college. When I got to college, one of my first mentors was a woman who, I mean, I, I know how to do ministry because she taught me to do that. But then I also had this moment my junior year of uh, what I call a disruptive encounter with the, it's in the article there where I had um, a student come to me from down the hall and it was the first time I'd ever wrestled with the text in first Timothy two. And I think that propelled me, that experience propelled me into this season of study on the topic of women in leadership. And some ways I don't think that season's ever stopped. I mean, I continue to, to reflect on the scriptures around this. But then I think as a young leader in ministry, I embraced sort of what I understood from that season of, you know, that God calls women to lead and and God calls men and women to lead together. And so I embraced that. I really tried to live that out, empowered and advocated for women in our InterVarsity community. Um, I think I'll tell you a story later about how I had to persevere through some pushback. And then I got to the place where um, I felt like I wanted to invest in who I am, who I am becoming as, a, as an ally. And so I spent four years in this doctoral program through Fuller Theological Seminary, focused on women and men in partnership. So this article that, that we're talking about isn't exactly what I studied in my research, but it's it's tangential. I mean, it's related in, in some ways. And then I'll say lastly about my journey I I, feel, I use the language of calling to talk about where I've landed. So I think the Lord has called me into this place. I mean, sometimes I'll be on the road speaking somewhere around the country to a group of people I've never met before on the topic of men and women in partnership or women in leadership or allyship. And I'll find myself thinking, how did I get here? <laughs> and um, if it's okay, I'm just going to blame the Lord for that. So I feel like Absolutely. the Lord has... <laughs> Yeah, I feel like the Lord has called me into this. And so for me to have fidelity to what I understand God calling me to, I'm in. I mean, wherever someone's talking about this stuff, I want to be a part of that. Um, my, my mission statement I've developed for myself is I want to challenge the people of God to embrace the theology and practice of gender equality. So that's a little bit of my journey.
0: I love that statement. Um, it's, you, you do know for women like me, it's really rare to come across men like you who are spending, you know, their um, their energy, their time, their gifts, their skills, their mind to advocate for women—it's just a—it's a, a. To this day, I am still always caught a little off guard by it. Like it's a bit shocking, and which is telling that I haven't experienced that very often, right? Yeah. Um, yep. And I'm talking about men who are full out, like, their career is being invested in doing that, you know. So anyway, you you talk about this pathway. And by the way, for Mm -hmm. my listeners, I am going to put it on um, our Facebook group, Jackie Always Unplugged, so you can go there and actually see it. I'm also going to upload the article so that you can read what he's written, but just so that you can actually see the structure of the pathway. But in your research, you said there's like three major ramp, on-ramps, if you will, to this pathway to becoming an ally. Explain to us what you mean by those on-ramps. What do they look like?
1: Yeah, well, first I'll say, I mean, I like the word ally. I mean, the initial draft of this paper actually used the word advocate. But I after some reflection and contemplation, I ended up with ally because I think it's a broader term. I think you are an ally when you're standing in solidarity with someone. You're an ally when you're you know, pastoring someone, caring for someone, uh, encouraging them. You're an ally when you're empowering someone. And yes, you're an ally when you're advocating. I like it because it's a broader term. And then the other piece of it is for me, I think I realized that advocacy is not always the right tool to use in, in given situations. And I actually think there's a, there's a downside in some ways to, to being to advocacy has a potential downside to it. So I like I landed with this idea of allyship, um, and I think there's like three places where people start this journey, like you said. So one would be that they're predisposed to positive allyship on behalf of women. Men are predisposed to that. And that would be my story, right? So I grew up, right. like I said, I grew up in a place where, you know, women were influential and that was normal and that was accepted. And so so I think that the choice to enter into the pathway for me was pretty pretty easy, given that that background. The second one would be um, more of an antagonistic or adversarial even kind of starting place. And I think, sadly, I think this is probably the most common of the three starting places. I think in too many, in my view, too many faith communities, the default setting is complementary and the default setting is that women are to be subordinate to men. And so... um, in my view, then, this is something that has to be overcome. So as someone enters into the pathway, they have to overcome this sort of starting position or this posture. And, I, and, I, and, one, and
0: let me just say here, I would also agree with you that that is the majority of my experience, is that that's the yeah. majority of men I know. That's where they're coming from. That's the starting point. Okay, the third, yeah. third yeah. on-ramp.
1: Yeah. The third one, third one is neutral. I I, I'm thinking this is the the smallest by percent, you know, the smallest percentage of of men would be in this place, but I think it's sort of this apathetic or naive, even clueless, uh, about the notion of privilege. Um, uh, I think for the most part, um, this would be like someone I've seen this a lot in men who are new to the church that make decisions to follow Jesus and are like, wait, what, what privilege, what is that? You know, what are we doing with this? So it's, (laughs) more of a neutral starting place but those are the 3 that I that I've seen most commonly.
0: Great. So the, one of the things you say is your first one of the steps is this thing you just mentioned earlier like this disruptive encounter this idea that men have to come to terms with their male privilege and in some way that happens because they bump into something or someone that causes their presumptions about women in leadership to be challenged. And I had that very experience working in a mega church. I actually had gone to get my doctorate in preaching, and I did that because I wanted to train more and more women to become effective teachers of God's Word, and my senior pastor was struggling with the fact that he couldn't find people to fill in the pulpit for him, and here I was in his congregation on his staff, and uh, he couldn't invite me to fill in even though I oversaw a thousand women in the women's Bible study and was teaching and teaching other women to preach and writing. And, but I, he couldn't have me stand in the pulpit because I was so, solely based on the reason that I was female, even though I was the most qualified in his church. And hmm. because we had a relationship, right? We were on staff together. We ate meals together as families. And so we knew each other. He, he liked me. He trusted me. And so it was our relationship that kind of forced him not only our relationship, but then my gifting that forced him to consider what he thought about women, the role of women in the church, and set them on mm-hmm. this trajectory for about two and a half years to explore what can women and can't do according to scriptures. And mm-hmm. I just, I just want to say it was uh, a lot prior to that. I had an, an, a, a time with Dr. Sarah Sumner at the time. She was a professor at Azusa Pacific and I remember her telling me, I was like, I just don't even want to get involved in this women's issue. That's what I called it, women's issue. <laughs> I, I just, I just want to teach women, and I want everybody to leave me alone. And, you know, somehow I know I'm going to end up in, in this spot. And she said, well, Jackie, it actually is going to take your face. It matters. There's got to be a face to this. It can't just be theological. Male leadership has to have an encounter with a woman they actually know, trust, and like, and she's gifted. And, 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 that, and that's like it's in their face, and they have to deal with it. So, yeah, you're going to have to be the face of it. I hated that thought, but she was right. She was spot on. So what kind of ways in your research did you find that men encounter this disruption? I shared it, just something in my own experience, but how, what did you find? How do, how do they encounter this disruption? And then maybe speak to yeah. the idea that our men that are getting hammered from every corner about their white male privilege, do you see that that's causing them, at least when it comes to this issue of the role of women in the church right now, is there more pushback right now? because they're getting this, this you know, white privileged message from all corners? Do you see any difference that's happening? Or are they more open to learn right now?
1: Yeah, yeah. So let me, let me unpack this idea of disruptive <laughs> encounter and then when you get to that last question, I think um, I've seen it happen lots of different ways. Um, that's the good news is there's, I think, lots of different channels for this. I think some disruptive encounters are seismic, you know, like one-off, whoa, something just blew my mind, right? That would be like, Saul's conversion, perhaps, like in Acts 9, or maybe other disruptive encounters are more like process and it takes time and it's maybe something more subtle, maybe something more like the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. I think there's a lot of, uh, I've seen lots of theological disruptive encounters. So, where, you know, we're studying the scriptures together and a man thinks, man has this experience that actually a complementarian reading of the scriptures isn't the only way to read the scriptures, right? And right. whoa. And you see the light bulb go off right um a colleague and i her name's tina we we've led three times we've led students through a week-long study of women in the bible bible study a week long and i it's just a privilege to watch the spirit move and see people's perceptions get challenged theologically and uh, to be there in the room for that and i think that's a disruptive encounter that i i relish because it's it's anchored in the scriptures right so that's that's certainly one. I think the one you described, Jackie, is another one. So experiential. So when you see um, women using their gifts, and it could be in preaching, it could be in other areas, but and it's just this undeniable sense that the Spirit of God is working right. through this sister in Christ, right? And yep. you, you all of a sudden have to, the man has to square their experience of watching God work through this person with their bias, right? And I love that. I love sort of coming alongside that experience and going. Let me help you try to interpret what you just walked through, right? <laughs> what you are so seeing. It, yeah, the experiential for sure is a part of that. Uh, in the In the article, I told the story of um, one one of the men I re, uh, sat with uh, was it was in a dating relationship, and he talked about how they were having a conversation about their vision for how m- their marriage would work ultimately down the line. And he realized in this moment that they were on a different page, that she wanted this complementarian um, experience and he didn't. And it was like this epiphany, right? Uh, that yeah. he thought, wow, this is, a, this is not going to work. And I think that for him was a disruptive encounter. I, I think this, the bottom line for me is a disruptive encounter stirs up the status quo, right? It, it's, it's a, whatever it is, it, it shakes someone's experience and it provokes a re-examination of a man's posture regarding regarding privilege. Right. So that's, I, I think oftentimes we, we use the word dis- disruption and that's a neg- automatic negative. Right. But I think God works through seasons of disruption. Right. And so um, that's my, yep. yeah, yep. that's my experience there. I mean to your question about pushback that men are getting for their privilege. Um, I mean, I'll say a couple things about that. I, the first one is whatever pushback men are getting regarding their privilege, I think pales in comparison to literally centuries of women being relegated to the margins of the church. Right. So, so I, I guess, to be honest, I think as men, um, we should just be sitting and listening and receiving that pushback and asking, reflecting on where it's coming from and then why it's coming. Right. So my encouragement to men would be to sit and listen, I think in this season and not automatically sort of recoil, um, because I think my fear is that men will disengage right, um, right? in light of pushback, right? And we'll move away from the church. We'll move away from Jesus. Um, to be honest, Jackie, one of the things that motivates me to write this piece, this article, is that I want to give men a positive, proactive, generative vision for their role in the conversation around gender equality and privilege, right? So I want to give men something to to identify uh, an identity to, to take on. And so I think allyship is one way I think we can do that.
0: Absolutely. And I want to say to the women who are listening, you know, um, I I like how you said uh, when we encounter disruption, that does not have to be negative. So many times I've had to say to women, just stay in the room, just let your physical presence stay in the room. They want to go home because they just feel like they're Mm -hmm. constantly ignored. And I'm like, if you're not, if you don't keep showing up, there is no face for men to have to reckon with. You've got to be present, and yes, it might not be pretty, and you might die without ever seeing um, the fruit of that. But I trust the Spirit's moving, and there is disruption just by your very presence being there, just by the very presence of opening the Scripture. I, I was with a friend one time, very close friend, and he's complementarian, and we got talking, and he said, "Well, you know, in the Garden in Genesis, there are roles." And I said, there are? And he goes, absolutely. And so I said, okay, well, let's open up the Bible and see. And I said, now, I'm just going to read to you Genesis 1 and 2, and if you could tell me where the roles are. And oops, sorry, I don't know if that's you or me. Doesn't matter. Um, point being, he there there wasn't any. And he got very flustered. He's like, Well, they're there. And i like, Well, okay, well, let's read them, you know, show me where, you know. And he couldn't. And really what was happening is he was just telling me what he had always heard, the interpretation he had heard. And when I opened up the Bible, it wasn't there. Um, and and it was a very uncomfortable moment, you know. But mm. I, I wanna say to women, be okay with those uncomfortable disruptions it's it can be necessary um yeah and don't be disappointed by it and don't just know that there's things at work even if you don't see it those things really matter um
1: maybe so
0: yeah so uh, your third step on the pathway is to respond to disruption and one man you interviewed commented that his um, response was to becoming like what you said and a, a really good listener so that he could learn more and mm-hmm. um This is crucial for men, and I I will say um, I watched my husband do a a marvelous job at helping men learn to listen. So he used to be Mm -hmm. uh, an executive pastor at our church, and he went to the male elders, and the conversation came up about are we doing the best we can do for women in leadership at our church? And, of course, the men were like, well, yeah, we're doing great. And in light of a lot of complementarian churches, we were. Our women were doing a lot of things, and so they just couldn't imagine where women were – being relegated to something less than. So Steve mm-hmm. said, well, how about this? How about we just call a bunch of women ministers from around the Metroplex, seminary students, et cetera, and have them in and for dinner. And our sole goal will just be to listen to their life story about what it's like to be a woman in ministry in, in, in our churches. And it was really important that he picked women that didn't just belong to our church because, you know, there's not as much freedom to share what you're really experiencing in your own church. So it was easier Mm. for the men to hear this whole group of women from different churches and different nonprofit Christian organizations. And these women, one after another, shared being slighted, not being invited, not being heard. Um, And that was the nice part. And by the end, we had some of the elders crying. I mean, they were in Mm. shock that that was what was happening to their sisters. They had no idea, and they weren't okay with it. And so just getting men to a position where they could listen. So I love that that's something that you bring up. What are some other ways um, that men can respond to their disruptive encounter?
1: Yeah, well, that's a great story. I mean, first of all, I'll say with disruptive encounter, the response that this is one place where I think men can opt out of the pathway, right? The other one is when they hit pushback. Um, and I've seen that, right, where a man has this, this disruptive encounter, whether it's in the scriptures or experience, and they go, nope, nope, uh, I'm not going there. Uh, they, in, in effect, they say, this is how the world is, and I'm okay with it. Or more to the point, they say, this is how the world is. God made it that way, where men are to lead, mm-hmm. and the privilege is legitimately mine, and they return back to the, you know, the start of the pathway. So I think it's important to say this is one place where men can opt out, which is why I think we need to apply uh, resources to guiding men through their experience of the disruptive encounter, through their response, right? But in terms of what it looked like, um, so I do think listening is important. So one of the quotes in the piece is um, a, a man I work with who said that he keeps sacred the opportunities when women in his life share vulnerably. And I love the way he framed that, right? Because for him, it was this holy moment when he's entrusted with, a woman's story, as painful as it is, and yeah, beautifully I think that's important. Said,
0: beautifully said. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So I like that. A second, I think a second way in terms of response is just to ask questions. So I think um, you know, for men to be uh, released to ask questions to explore the notion of privilege further, I think by asking trusted mentors, by focused Bible study, by choosing displacement, and there's different ways. I think that we continue to respond well, and I think one of those is asking questions. And then lastly, I do think um, there's, this, there's a place for repentance here to say, basically, uh, I don't deserve this privilege. God, how would you have me use this? What would you have me do with this? And maybe more to the point, how can I leverage this privilege, privilege that culture gives me to bless and empower my sisters in Christ, right? Mm. I think mm. my own experience. I, I, there was a season of about two or three years where I was really wrestling with this idea of male privilege. Like what, you know, what does it mean that I have this and what would God have me do with this? You know, in the same way that Jesus is Lord over my time and my calling and my material possessions, it seems like Jesus should be Lord over my privilege as well. So yes. what would you have me do with this Jesus? And so I blogged uh, twice a week for about three years, maybe on this idea of male male privilege and, it really helped me to wrestle with that, right? So I think for men to be invited into some sort of process, it doesn't have to be two or three years, but to wrestle with this reality, and I think that's a healthy response, right? That's the response that keeps them on the pathway.
0: Yeah, and you also mentioned that they need help along the way, right? If they're going to stay on the pathway, they need help along yeah. the way, tools. And one of them that you mentioned just a second ago is this idea of mentors, that they, mm-hmm. that men need trusted mentors to help them in this process. And so I would love for you to elaborate a little bit about that. And then also, I I struggle, I struggle, struggled a little bit with that because I, I know so many men in leadership who, um, I'm trying to say this. Um, in a way that's not too inflammatory, but they, they, they only hang out in, um, in highly, deeply connected coalitions that are complementarian, like Acts 29, mm. Southern Baptist Convention, mm. Gospel Coalition. And so they get invited to these leadership conferences and books that they read and all that, and it's very, very tightly male, And so the only male mentors I can see them being exposed to Are other males who are high complementarian and are not gonna help them on this journey? So, how does, and I I have some specific men in mind. That's why I'm asking the question like, how do they even find a mentor to help them think this through? Because that's dangerous um, landmines to be navigating if you're involved in some of those coalitions.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I think it's, I mean, I don't know how to solve that problem exactly, Jackie, but some ideas. So, one would be, I think when, when you've moved through the allyship, I mean, one of the recommendations I'll make is when someone gets to stage seven, when they've moved through the pathway, I think immediately they should look behind them and maybe even before it's stage seven, but and look to mentor people like that are in stages two or three. So, so I think, you know, we need older, egalitarian male allies to make themselves available as options for people who um, you know, are used to this one sort of track of mentorship that you're describing, um, there's no reason we can't be intentional about that. Right. Mm, so mm. I think, um, I mean, I, I try to do that in my context. So if you are a man who comes on staff with InterVarsity in my neck of the woods, you're going to hear me <laughs> invite you into some, some, and it could look different ways, but some degree of mentoring or influence around this topic, right. And just come to the territory, right. So, I think we can we can up our game in terms of our intentionality around making mentors options for people. So that's one thing. And I do think uh a second thing would be that we need to diversify our mentoring um portfolios, right? I think we have this paradigm that says that there's sort of one mentor and that's it. That's what it looks like to be mentored, but I think the reality is we can have a diverse collection of voices in our lives and that's really healthy.
0: Very healthy. I mean even I would yes. say
1: yeah I'd even say that um if you have mentors that only say things you agree with, you're doing it wrong. I mean, I think you need mentors that say things that challenge you that cause you to really reflect on things that with you know that you wrestle with it's good to be challenged. It's good to see things from a different perspective. so I guess if I had one of those men you're thinking about in your mind, I'd ask them about the diversity of voices that they're choosing to listen to right yeah. The, yeah. and
0: then
1: and then maybe my last thought is um around this would be for those men i'd be looking for ways to create disruptive encounters for them i do think it's going to take and maybe it's on the seismic end of the spectrum i talked about earlier but it's going to take something to shake their experience a woman who's preaching a woman who's planting a church successfully you know something a scripture study it's going to take something to disrupt their, um, you know, modus operandi. Right. So I think like we're looking for ways we should be looking for ways to guide them into and through such an encounter.
0: Yeah. And I, I, that's, that's something I've experienced in my own life. Like I, a lot of men will come into, uh, into contact with me and then they have to wrestle with what I'm saying, my gifting, et cetera, et cetera. And what, what I find though is that I get a lot of credit. Like there's, uh, there's some credibility there, But uh, Mm -hmm. it's helpful if I can then, I might be the disruptive encounter they have. It's helpful if I can then actually point them to some men who they can actually ask questions to, spend time with. Because somehow they, and I don't know exactly why, but they actually need some male figure in their life to say and be Mm -hmm. the exact same things I'm doing. But I don't feel quite as safe to them. In other words, there's something that, you know, they can't quite. It, they need another man to be able to affirm that, to be able to mm-hmm. feel secure in, yeah. in that encounter and continue down that pathway. I've, I've seen that play out, and just listening mm-hmm. to them thinking, oh, I have really failed here because in the Marcella Project, you know, one of the things that we do is try to reshape the view of men and women, and uh, we have men who have supported the ministry and have been involved in the ministry, and I don't think I've ever personally challenged them to be really deliberate about going after and finding men who are in stage two three and four and how can they walk them Mm -hmm. and i'm even thinking i will be mailing them this article asap and suggesting to them (laughs) hey be you guys are there you're at the end of this you are full allyship with women what are we going to do to help you understand this pathway and how can you be specific so geez that was really helpful for me to even realize i here i am i'm in that work and i didn't realize that i need to tell men do that you know so yeah.
1: all right yeah, i mean jackie i, I, I just ahead. to say I, I think like it would be great if the lord came and like put in the skylight skywriting like this is how i want the church to be and women on equal footing i mean that would be awesome if something crazy like that happened right but i i think we're going to make change in the church one person at a time yes. in a lot of ways and so i think i think what you're saying is right so to say listen who can i influence who's in my network? that I can influence um, is a great question for men who have gotten through this process to be asking themselves. Right. And then, and then I think sometimes our structures in our churches maybe need to flex to give them permission to exercise that leadership. Right. I think do we celebrate mentoring in our churches? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe sometimes some do, some don't, but I think how can we empower men who have worked their way through this pathway to go back and find their brothers. Right.
0: Oh man, that's a great, I'm hoping I might be commissioning you now, Rob, to take that on and figure out how we can put that in our churches. <laughs> and I think that's a brilliant, That's that that right there needs to continue to be, uh, you know, worked out here because that's that's important. I think that's huge. Okay, in your model, step four yeah. is initial attempts at allyship. Mm-hmm. And some um, men listening sure would appreciate any ideas you may have or have discovered. Yeah. How do men begin to advocate? What does it look like for them to advocate for women? Um yeah.
1: yeah, yeah. I think my first, my pastoral word is to start small. I mean, you may feel like you want to start a revolution, which maybe <laughs> some people can, but I, I think um, starting smaller is probably wiser. So listening and learning is a place to start. We've talked about that a few times. Um, I think a second thing would be, can you go out of your way to encourage women in your context? So this again, this is simple, right? But can you find someone who's doing something, taking risks for Jesus, right? stepping out into ministry and can you come alongside and support them and just say, you're doing awesome. Maybe give them some resources, give them, if you have access, give them some mentoring or sponsorship or encouragement around that. A third thing I think for men um, is to speak up in our own networks and to call out misogyny when we see it in our peers. Right. So uh, I think, you know, sometimes we are in, settings where someone makes an off-color joke that disparages women, that marginalizes women, that objectifies women. Do we let that joke go by or do we call it out as Mm -hmm. wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the students that went through our seminar one time, we got to the application part. He was a football player at a community college. And I remember him saying in application, okay, listen, the locker room is a tough place. We talk about women in really disparaging ways. He goes, my application from this study is to go back and call out my my football, you know, uh, partners, buddies. And I I thought to myself, like, good thing he's a linebacker because he's (laughs) going to get pushback, right, in that situation. It's going to be hard for him. But I appreciate that posture, right, to say, like, when I see misogyny with men in the the networks I'm in, I'm going to call that out. And I think that's allyship. And then the last thing I'll just say is, you know, I think – Starting small means asking yourself and having the question on your mind, where are there opportunities in my life, in my context, to to be an advocate, to be an ally, to be a blessing to women around me? So if you have access to leadership circles, then you can be asking questions about representation. You can be asking questions about ministry opportunities that women wouldn't otherwise get. Yep. Um, I think it's about being proactive and intentional in whatever circumstances God has you.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, I love the idea of whatever area of influence or platform you ask yourself, What is there a way I can make room at this table for a woman to be yeah. here? And quite frankly, yeah. I don't know if you know this, but studies show you actually need 30% female. We yes. have to start with one, but we need about 30% in order for there to be a tipping point where she doesn't feel exhausted carrying the weight of being the only female in the room. But also the yeah. tipping point is that that's when her voice and the things that women bring to the table become um, valued and heard and executed in the corporation or organization, et cetera. So, so you did yeah. talk about the pushback. Yeah, mm-hmm. and not all men can be a linebacker when it comes to the pushback. So <laughs> how do, and, and and we got to admit here, there's a pretty good chance that when you become allied with women, you are going to experience pushback. I would say that if you don't, well I, I just don't i can't imagine that you aren't going to on some level so how yep. do men experience that and do you think it surprises them and and maybe a follow up question i have is does this pushback cause men to ask further questions like oh my gosh why such visu- visceral intense reaction to my calling out misogyny or to my inviting her to speak at the board meeting um, does it help Does it cause men to question what is really going on here and, and become maybe even more aware of the explicit and implicit bias we have toward women?
1: Yeah. uh, Yes. To all of the above Jackie, (laughs) for sure. So um, I've seen plenty of men be surprised by the pushback they get. Um, It makes me think I need to be better about as a mentor, about letting them know that they probably will face pushback. Right. But I think I've seen men be surprised by that. I've also seen, the experience of pushback really clarify, um, you know, this disruptive encounter is one thing, but I think when you get to the point of pushback, you really see the problem, right? Because it's right in front of you and it's in some ways, the problem is yours to deal with now in a way that it maybe wasn't before. Right. So I I agree with, I agree with you. I think, I think for men, you know, you're not an ally until you've experienced some degree of personal pushback where it's you that's on the line for your conviction where it's you that's being called out in some way. Um, maybe I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, one of my staff, a few about a couple of years ago, was a part of a planning team in our town for an outreach. And he was in this leadership community, and they were trying to make decisions about who. They got to the point where making decisions about who would speak at this outreach. And, uh, and they started brainstorming names, and the whiteboard got filled with a bunch of men. And he decided he would ask the question, well, what about women? Are there women that we could ask to speak at this thing? And he was, I mean, shut down is probably not strong enough, right? He he was all but kicked out of the room, right? To say, well, we don't do that. That's not appropriate. That's not okay. God doesn't do that. And so he, that was significant for him to be like sort of uh, personally on the line. And so he came back from that and we had a conversation and he said, I said, what do you want to do? He goes, I want to come back to the table on that. I said, okay. So we brainstormed what that would look like, and he went back in, and he asked a bunch of questions, and he had names ready to go to put on the whiteboard of women in our town who could be speakers for this event. The story doesn't end great because in the end, he basically got denied that whole thing, right? So that doesn't end well. But where it does end well is in this person's journey on the pathway. So what that did for him was it clarified his convictions. It solidified his convictions. It brought him face-to-face with the problem, and it's propelled him forward from you know, step five to step six, where he's like – I mean, he would be a mentor now to men who, who are further back down the road. Um, so I, I think for him as, a, as, a, as an ally in terms of his identity, that experience was crucial, and I think it's crucial for men to put themselves in that place. Um, And if you're not, I would question whether you're actually on the road, probably at some level.
0: That's my point. If you're not experiencing pushback, you're probably not doing anything. I mean, Mm -hmm. if a woman puts herself out there, especially in a complementarian church, and does any or ministry and does anything to um, push against the walls that are up, you know, about her what what she's supposed to look like and how she's supposed to behave and what her gifting is supposed to be and all that, she always gets pushback. It doesn't not exist. So I can't imagine that it wouldn't be for men either. So, you know, you mentioned this idea of moving to step six, investment. And so I'd love for you to share a little bit with our listeners about the process. You did in the beginning a bit, but your process where you decided to move through the pushback towards investment. What was that like for you?
1: Yeah. Well, at one point in my journey, I was a young leader in our intervarsity community. Um, And I, um, so there was a local church in town that had a really strong complementarian College pastor. He's an ardent complementarian. It was like on his agenda, you know. So it was like, let's talk about this basically weekly. And so we had students who are part of our intervarsity group, which was egalitarian, and this complementarian community. And so they were trying to make sense. Well, what do we do here? Um, And so I started to have all of these meetings with students who are living in both worlds. And one day, I went to meet with a student at the um, in the cafeteria on campus. And I walked in thinking I was just meeting with him, but he wasn't alone. And this pastor was sitting in the room with him. And for the next hour, this mm. pastor proceeded to just, I mean, I use words like annihilate, Grille. eviscerate. <laughs> yeah. Grill. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I probably got called a false teacher, you know, 50 times in that mm. hour mm. because in his, his claim was because you are allowing women to preach the scriptures you are a false teacher and there are penalties for that and he just read them to me out of first timothy and off we went and um i mean it was extraordinarily painful for me um for sure and it but in the aftermath of that jackie it really galvanized me to ask the question well do i really care about this stuff like is it in other words i think going into that conversation for me Women in leadership, men and women in partnership, gender equality, maybe not a hill to die on. After right. that experience, after I had quote unquote died on that hill, so to speak, I was all in, you know, and I think that experience really pushed me forward on this journey that I'm trying to describe in the paper. I, so it was formational, right? Um, and I think something changed in me on that day. And, and it was this sort of fuller embrace of the, not just the value, but this identity. As an
0: ally, so kind of the same thing that happened to the guy that was, you know, a proponent for bringing women into the speaking engagement in the city. Yeah, right. It, it, you got, you got filleted, and then you went, whoa, that didn't feel good, and then it made it, you became clear how deep this issue really goes, Um, and then, and then chose to stay in it. And move to the investment stage. Yep. W- w- yep. You quote this guy um, saying this thing in your article. He says, my goal is to use whatever voice and influence I have to develop women leaders and help them find places to make th- the contribution that God intended them to make. And mm-hmm. when I read that, I um, I could almost well up in tears and cry. And I'm not a big crier. Um because again i think it's so i've been in this work for 25 years ish and um i i have rarely encountered men who um really enter full investment of allyship with women and i have to tell you as a woman when i see it and when i have experienced it it's overwhelming inside and um, I, one of the times that that hit me the most I mean my husband's always been that and I've always been overwhelmed by that to be honest um, but I had a, a man he actually supports the Marcella project he, his name is Mitch Little and he's um, an elder at Bent Tree Bible Church in Dallas and he and his wife invited Steve and I over to the house for dinner and he shared with me that he had read Lime Green a book I wrote about my experience mm-hmm. as a woman in ministry and how that was like a tipping point for him, because he and the elders at this church had been trying to decide. They already had women preaching, but they wanted to decide was was it biblical for women to be elders? And they went through all the th- scholars, whatever. But then just reading a woman's story was very pivotal for him. And so, anyway, he shared with me that Bentry was getting ready to they had they had decided that they were going to invite women to the table, all inclusive of women in all roles at the church. And he even sent me, he said, this is the day we're going to roll it out. And he told me what Sunday it was. And then he sent me what he was going to say. And he's a beautiful writer. And I read it. And it was beautiful. And I was just excited. And I called all my female ministry leader friends and said, hey, you need to be at Bentry on this Sunday. And don't ask me why. I can't tell you. But trust me, you want to be there. And literally, we had a whole row taken up um, of us women and the men, our men allies in our camp. And and, and Mitch stood up, and he said this thing that I had already read. And he said it in his incarnational male body, in his male voice. Um, and I started to bawl. And, and I mean, snot running out of my nose like that, <laughs> you know, when you're embarrassed kind of bawl. And I thought, what on earth, you know? And I looked down, and all of my sisters in that row are crying, too. And it really was this presence of seeing this strong man advocate so beautifully. I mean, he didn't just say, hey, we want you at the table. He said, we need you at the table. I've yeah. never heard that said from a, me- a male's voice. You know, it was just, I just hope you know, Rob, that having men like you advocate for us to be allies with us, it's, um, it's life, it's transformative for us women. It, it blows us away. So, yeah, I share thanks, that Jackie. I share that, so yay, thank you. Um, but let <laughs> me ask you, how do you think our faith communities can focus more on helping make more men into allies for women? And I really do think there needs to be that idea you put out there of how do we get churches to do this type of men mentorship? That's a really great idea that needs to be, you know, worked out a little bit more. but what what would you say? How, what do our faith communities yeah. need to focus on? How do we even get started? Yeah.
1: Yeah, good question. I, first of all, let me go back to that quote you mentioned earlier. I, I, I'm dear friends with the the man that said that, and I want you to know he's been living that quote out for 30, probably 35 years of mm, ministry, vocational mm. ministry. Now, I mean, we are out there, so there are men like like him out there. Yeah, um, just a couple of thoughts. I mean, and some of this we've already covered, but I, I do think uh, we want to choose to make disruptive encounters of reality so I think we want to choose into disruption I, I realize that comes with there's a cost probably that that is felt by people when I say that but i I do think we want to encourage the men in our communities to see their privilege and to step onto the pathway uh, we should teach an egalitarian message and embody it in our structures and in our culture and in that way we should challenge people to really rethink challenge men in particular how to really think about their privilege right so I think preaching on a Sunday on, you know, women in leadership, which should happen, you know, every year in a church, a couple times a year, perhaps, mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. I think in small groups and things like that. So I think we choose into disruption. It's probably one thought. A second is what we've talked about. So we need to be intentional about discipling men through this pathway. Um, and one way to do that is by pairing up younger men with mentor, older mentors would be, would be allies with like seasoned allies. And I think we should be intentional about that type of thing. I, I love to see like a cohort, right? So where you had like someone who's through stage seven go, Hey, listen, if any of you men out there want to become allies to your sisters, I'm leading a group on that. Join me.
0: That'd be and, awesome. And, you know,
1: off we go, right? Yeah. Or at or a men's retreat, right? Like, could we talk about allyship? I think it would be great fodder for like a, a weekend away, that kind of thing. And then maybe one other thought here is I, I would love to see us celebrate successes, right? So I think um, one of the ways, and there's a lot of change literature out there, but, but acknowledging bright spots and broadcasting those bright spots is one way to shape culture. It's one way to change um, the culture of a community. And I think when a man navigates a disruptive encounter well, we should celebrate that. Yes. When a, de- when a developing ally pushes through pushback, I think we should call that out. I think publicly citing those bright spots um, is a way to to get where we want to go around some of this stuff, right? So, and I think if you do that often enough, our faith communities create cultures where male allyship is normative, right? It becomes normal to talk about these things. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that idea of celebrating. That's a great idea. Great idea. All right, we're getting to the end of this. I want to ask just, I I, I just want you to speak to my sweet, sweet sisters out there who are listening, particularly women who find themselves whether it's because they are in ministry or it could be even in the corporate world, it could even be in their church or home life where they find themselves being marginalized, maybe a little invisible, treated as a second-hand, second-class hand 2nd citizen solely based mm-hmm. on the fact that they are women. Um, could you just speak a word of encouragement to her? Because she's, she's listening, by the way. She's, she's, part, she's a large part of, this, of the audience that follows Jackie, always unplugged. So what, yeah. what, what word of encouragement can you give her today?
1: Well, first I'll say, I'm I'm really glad that these women have you, Jackie, in their ears and in their hearts. I think that's a great start. I mean, a couple of thoughts. So one would be, um, you know, hang in there. Um, Hang in there. I think the gender lines that you're talking about, Jackie, are often invisible, but they're also painful. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I want women to know that there are guys like me out there standing in solidarity, cheering women on, uh, eager to care, eager to come alongside and Support. um i guess i would say that you know we need you and when i say we i mean the church needs you even if you don't hear that from the church the kingdom of god needs you yes uh you're not you know some trouble to be avoided you are god's gift to a hurting world is what i would say so that's probably one thing is hang in there the second thing i'd say is um just to encourage you to look around for allies they you know, it, it may be hard to see them, and especially if you're in a complementarian church context or in a part of the country where that's more normative, um, it may be hard to see them. But I have met male allies in unusual places, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And um, and they are out, out there. there. They
0: might be quieter because they're in yeah. such a complementarian church, but they are there.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So look for them. And then I guess the other thing I'd say to women is— um, is if you're unable to see an ally in your network, maybe try to develop them, right? So whether that's, you know, someone in your networks or even someone that you're raising in your home as a son, I think give them this article, send them to me if you like. Uh, I just feel like how do we proactively raise up men and allies is the, is the question I would put on it. So so hang in there. Uh, God loves you. God needs you to advance the kingdom and, and look for allies. Two thoughts.
0: And what you also said, Rob, which is where I'm going to close this out here, as you said, and yeah. you can point them to me. So if my listeners wanted to know where to find out more about you and your work and connect with you, how would they go about that?
1: Yeah, I always tell my staff workers that if they want me to read their email and respond to it quickly, they should say something about gender and the title and the subject <laughs> line. And then... And then they started to abuse that. So it would be like, help me with this complimentary student. And then the, the, the email was an expense report question. So, <laughs> so a couple thoughts. Um, yeah, I'm online, um, togetherinmission.net. That's one word, togetherinmission.net is my little home on the web. Um, I'm always looking for opportunities to engage discussions around gender and faith. And then people can reach out anytime. People can follow me on Twitter. I'm at R rdixon, D-I-S, R-D-I-X-O-N, D-I-S. And then, um, I mean, I've got a book coming out. I'm working on it right now. It's coming out in 2021 on men and women in partnerships. So that's a, maybe a subtly different topic, related topic, but um, that's coming out in 2021 as well. So would love to connect. This is the kind of thing, like I said, this is what I'm called to talk about and so eager to do so.
0: Awesome. When your book comes out, be sure to tap me and I will make sure that our readers, it's up and loaded on our social media so everybody can find it. I want to thank you for giving us your time and your mind uh, to this particular special podcast that we're having on the 26th of August, which is the 100th year celebration of women gaining the right to vote so and I want to thank all of the listeners out there Um, if this was worth your time please go to iTunes or Apple's or any other platform you use and subscribe to Jackie Always Unplugged and please please pass this along to a friend who could benefit from Rob's research and his ideas in this pathway to making more men allies we'll talk to you guys in another week Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.